Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Carrie Potts is our guest on this episode of the Cuse Conversations Alumni Podcast. Potts is a talented and experienced communications professional who spent the previous 17 years working for ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. Recently, she changed careers relocating to Washington, D.C. to take on the role as Vice President of External Relations with the Institute for Women's Policy Research. While Carrie's career has generally had a sports theme since earning both her bachelor's and master's degrees from the Newhouse School here at Syracuse University, Carrie is also passionate about advancing equality efforts for women and girls. Carrie, thank you so much for making the time to join us here on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm a, a total newbie here in D.C. I know no one, so uh, might as well join the podcast and talk to the Keys people. This is exactly where it's at, Carrie. You want to get yeah. in touch with the orange people, you know. Yes, my people. <laughs> and you're lucky in D.C. too. There's a very strong alumni presence. There's the Greenberg House, uh, which they're doing virtual programs like everybody else during the pandemic. Well, I caught myself on that quickly because I went walking last Friday. I do a lot of walking and I stumbled right on the Greenberg House. Like literally looked up and I said, oh, oh, I. And I thought I'd just walk in and be like, hey, everybody. Like, <laughs> I thought, probably can't do that right now. But I, the, the instinct was to just, like, go in and, like, grab a coffee and see what's up, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there, I guarantee you, once things return to ne- – we're never going to get back to a normal period. Yeah, what is in, normal? What is normal? Right? No I keep idea. saying this is the new abnormal right now. It's yeah. basically <laughs> we're adjusting, finding ways to cope, and – And luckily, people, we still have a very strong virtual presence for Syracuse University and our alumni. And we use this podcast to really connect and tell the stories of people that are making a difference. And, you know, I was so happy that you wanted to to come on and share your story because I think what you've done, you're you're reinventing yourself right now after that, you know, almost 17 plus year run with ESPN. You know, why was now the right time for you to switch from a sports kind of themed career to getting back uh, to, to women's equality. You, you never got away from women's equality, but yeah. now your career gets to focus on it solely. Why'd I turn to it full time? I know it would be kind of counterintuitive to think, hmm, recession, pandemic. Why don't we do a job change? That sounds brilliant. Uh, you, you like <laughs> a challenge, I can tell. <laughs> and I'm like afraid to tell people because it's, it's such a horror story out there, right? With employment numbers. Um, but this is something I've been working on for over a decade. You know, I've been naturally drawn to the subject matter through, through personal experience. Um, and I have done this work, uh, you know, in trying to combat gender-based violence. I have been involved as a rape crisis counselor. I have been, um, you know, a speaker. I speak around the country, um, volunteer on this, on this topic in particular, um, and just always advocating for equality for women and girls, you know, just, just especially being in sports, which tends to be so inequitable in, oh gosh, at pretty much every level. Um, you know, I really became more and more you know, hyper aware of that. And the more you grow in your career, the more power you have, the more voice you have, and the ability to do something. So, you know, it's, it's actually a natural transition for me. It just so happened that I was 
getting ready. I'd been preparing for a good year before the year I was going to make the transition. And this opportunity came along and I know when I saw it, I, I knew I was going to get the job before I even applied because because there was just like a confluence of things, but I just saw it and said, oh yeah, that's the job. Like, you know, that's going to be it. That's what I want to do. That's perfect. It's like they wrote it for me. And so here I am at the Institute for Women's Policy Research in DC. And, you know, we're the leading think tank that puts forth this research about economic policy, um, security, um, so social policy that really advances equality for women and girls and women of color, especially. Um, we know how adversely they've been affected by so many of these, uh, you know, recent events. But so it's just so important to me and to get to do it all the time. It's it wasn't it wasn't like leaving sports was sad. It was it was the next step in my growth as a person. We talked about this a little bit before, but there's nothing wrong at all with, with pushing your envelope, pushing your boundaries. No. And it can be scary to reinvent yourself, but this really does seem like it's the perfect next chapter in, in your career. So yeah. tell us a little bit about how you, as one of the, as the vice president for external relations, what role will you play in advancing some of those key efforts on pay inequality, sure. poverty, education, and more? My job is to take my network and my experience being out in front for a national and worldwide brand like ESPN part of the Walt Disney Company, the, the experience of working for a company like that, understanding those systems, uh, distilling it to a very small organization, small but mighty, um, like IWPR, to broaden their reach and to get this research they're doing into the hands of everyday women, you know, of, where it doesn't have to just get it out of just the research world, you know, the grant makers and get it out of the people kind of inside that super tight think tank space and bring it to the people right? Um, what's the good if you have to rely on, on someone else or a press release or a media member to get it to them? You know, they, they do serve that purpose, but I'm, I would be competing with so many folks. And my thought is, you know, get it to the women that are doing this work right now. I mean, in sports, there's so many committees, so many women talking about equality. I mean, look at the U.S. soccer team, right? And, and a lot of the work they did is what they were, was fueling their work, you know, and their ideas is, the research coming out of IWPR. We're the ones putting forth and saying, this is what the wage gap is. This is when it'll close in this year for white women, for black women, for Hispanic women, for native women. Um, so just trying to connect to people like, hey, we're the ones doing it. Why don't we just like, why don't we get connected? And um, you know, to me, that's, that's the, the big get for someone who loves communications, who's dedicated to this topic, who wants to help women as many, as far and as wide as possible. So I think that's the, uh, what's attractive, alluring about it. And I know I can do it. You know, I know I can do it. I have the confidence. So, uh, yeah, I'm only in my second week, just finishing my second week today. And my head is spinning. Yeah, I think you have a little bit more time to build up. you got a little <laughs> leeway. <laughs> oh, God. Woo! <laughs> Now you mentioned um, you know, sports, and, and and it's it's for a long time been a male-dominated arena. But I'm hoping, and it seems like the the barriers have been breaking down. And and I really want to go to one incident you mentioned about equal pay and Megan Rapinoe, the superstar for USA yeah. Women's Soccer. She drew a lot of ire when she was talking about these competitive pay issues. And to me, it's the same thing with, with tennis. If you win a tennis tournament and Wimbledon has yep. a different pay scale for the men than the women, all of the majors, I believe, have different pay scales and compensation. I know that's been built up over time, but how do you go about changing and trying to eradicate 
some of those inequities, especially in something that's so entrenched like pro sports. Well, let's give a nod to Venus Williams for being so out there. We did, a, I think, a 30 for 30 or 9 for 9 on her about what she did to demand that Wimbledon pay people equally, pay women and men equally. So it's about using your power, asserting your, your leverage. And so let's talk about Megan and the U.S. women's soccer team. What, is a hotter, what was a hotter team at that moment in time? Uh, if people are falling over themselves, it was appointment viewing. Uh, everyone's trying to go you know, watch them play. They're absolute superstars. And that's the moment you say, okay, I'm a superstar, I've done X, Y, Z, then show me the money. Um, for so long, the way it has worked in sports, and they, they still try it, you know, none of us are buying it that know what's what, but they still try saying, oh, well, women's sports aren't as fun to watch. And they get women to agree to this. Oh, therefore, we can't fund it. It's just, no one will watch, you might have to waste money. But then they try 50 million times to get the XFL resurrected, some semi-quality brand. I don't care what woman has invested in it. Okay, that's not going to sell me on it. She could have invested her money in, in women's teams just as easily. Um, but this kind of internalized belief that we are lesser as, as athletes, that we're not as much fun to watch, um, which is garbage. If you've ever watched Serena Williams play or Coco now, she's, you know, brilliant. Um, you know, my eye doesn't know the difference between a 100-mile-per-hour serve and an 85-mile-per-hour serve. You know, I just know what good athletes and great play looks like. Um, so, you know, to, to go back to your original question, cause I could go on for hours, um, disrupting in, entrenched institutions to causes discomfort and people are pissed. They get, they get angry. They're angry because they don't want to change. Change means they have to give up something. And when you own all the stuff, you don't want to give up any of it. We're very greedy. People are inherently like their stuff, you know, and, but it wasn't so ridiculous what she was asking for. And, and the way she was shouted down and, well, you know, you got your, you won your trophies and you got your award and your, you know, your golden, was it the golden aura or the award that they get as best player in the world? And, you know, isn't that enough? But we're a country that's built on like, actually, show me the money. <laughs> that, that tells me I'm enough, right? So <laughs> kind of uh, counterintuitive again, but I understand why that reaction is that way. It would be for anything when people ask to be paid equitably. People don't like to pay them. And, and especially when you've got these long established traditions and there's the stereotypes out there that again, people are fighting to break through. And I'm glad you brought up Venus. She's an outstanding example. There's so many people that are, are trying to break down these barriers and it's gonna just have to be this repetition. It's not gonna be one person who can get through. And I'm sure you saw some yeah. examples behind the scenes with, with ESPN and, and your work. How did you find ESPN's attitudes towards women and women's sports kind of changed and evolved during your 17 years there? So at ESPN, it was, you know, I would say in the beginning, I didn't notice it as much because I was working in a field and, uh, you know, entertainment is very diverse, uh, very creative types. You know, they're open to a lot of ideas. And then you got to college sports, which is completely one note, appallingly so in 2020. Um, and it took more time than it probably should have. You know, I learned how to make suggestions and then back off for people's comfort level. And, you know, again, that was not my main role while I was there. Um, and you have to get people have to find you being credible that you support the business and understand the business and the limitations. And and then they'll let you, you know, push on certain things. But you kind of have to balance both. You can't just sit there and go into a room with people and say, we're going to do this thing that's going to change our entire bottom line because it's the right thing to do. Like no business does that. Like no business is that altruistic. Um, and you have to accept that. And I always think it's funny when some people are in a business like, you know, Disney's our, was our 
paymaster, right? I had Donald Duck and, and Mickey Mouse on my paycheck, right? And, but I'm anti-establishment, like how ridiculous, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think at the same time, ESPN is part of that, part of an environment that was cr- predicated on the idea that men's sports are the only thing worth putting money behind. That was set in motion decades ago. And they buy rights and, you know, and that's what people watch and people are used to watching it, men and women, because women have been told, you know, nobody wants to watch women and, and, and almost to the point of being made fun of for wanting to watch women's sports, right? And guys watching women's sports, forget it. There's still this kind of like taboo around it. Although the US women's soccer team, I think broke through it, Serena and Venus, et cetera, these kind of highlights. Um, so, you know, the expectation at ESPN can do more than it is able to do is, you know, a little naive, but it's also part of the problem, you know, in that weird way that it perpetuates a problem that it inherited, built a business off of, but at the same time, to know that so many executives, I mean, they just televised a um, Eagles concert. (laughs) Okay, the target audience for that was 60 years plus. There is nothing in our research that ever showed that that is a demo we've been pursuing. We've been bleeding 18 to 34 year olds right and left because of new technology and fragmented marketplace and content. And that was to throw money at that. And, you know, you see one of our executives say, oh, well, like, you know, signed my name on the contract with Don Henley. I'm like, are you just living out your dreams with a budget that could have gone, you know, so you hear stuff like that. You're like, that's unbelievable how easy it is to make a decision, right? A decision was made that didn't serve the, the business. You know, it didn't serve what we've been saying that we need to do to attract new viewers. So when you see how quick it can happen, it's really hard to accept how laborious it is to get the slightest more content for women. You know, and that's being honest. And that's, yeah. that's just the honest truth of it. And I get to say it now because I'm not in sports anymore. <laughs> And I'm not afraid. And I think that's when you can be super effective. And we've learned that and we've seen that, you know, evident tenfold over through the the Black Lives Matter protests since George Floyd's killing. We've seen that, you know, during COVID-19, during this pandemic, it seems like people have more of an awareness of a lot of the uh, inequities that are taking place around them. Your work with the Institute for Women's Policy Research and what you guys are going to be able to continue to do to kind of level the playing field yeah. What, what are some like tangible takeaways when you mentioned like pay inequality, you mentioned yeah. increasing and improving education and, and, and poverty efforts. What are some tangibles that the IWPR is able to do to, to affect change like that? Well, like I said, I think it's getting into the hands of the people that are the decision makers and policymakers. You know, there was a report that came out the organization we work with times up and, you know, you have to get people to accept the work. So we're, we're nonpartisan. You know, we're, so that's important because we're in a very toxic, bifurcated political environment, I think would be, you know, what we would say now. And so at first you got to get people to accept numbers and facts and figures. Remember, we used to do that a lot. That was a thing for a while. That was a thing. And, and once they accept that, then, you know, these are the, this is the path forward. And, you know, so get it to the policymakers, but get it to the people so the people know who to support at the state and local level. That's really where you get the biggest change. It's not waiting every four years for the president. It's 
the local and state laws move things along. And, you know, there was so the, the study that came out with Time's Up was just basically saying, you know, white men represent 32% of the country, but 70% of the Senate. And 58% of them don't believe that there is a gap in pay, that there's a gender wage gap. So you can see if they don't believe it, it's trickling into all these decisions that are made, right? It's indecision. If you don't accept that there are these, you know, these other things, um, these other competing needs, it really trickles down. And it, so here we are in a pandemic. The first thing is everyone stay home, right? But there was no bolstering of domestic violence services or, you know, ch child abuse. So a decision was made for one health danger that created a perfect environment for a completely different set of health dangers that, were, were, that there's been an uptick in deaths and murders of women, you know? So it's, it's very complex, but it's basically getting people to understand how these things are interrelated and how they can affect that change. And it's usually at the, at the, the grassroots and the state and local level um, and, you know, and then push upwards. And I think it's the, you know, they say knowledge is power, but it's actually really true. You know, it's, it's, it's true. And it's a very elementary too. And I don't know that we're, we've kind of lost out a little bit um, societally. Was there a moment when you had your eyes opened up because you're so passionate about these topics? I know. I'm like, ah! <laughs> good luck with editing. Good luck with editing this interview. But I, I, lo I love it. The fact that you're bringing it. And again, you're so energetic. What, what drives this? You know, was there a seminal moment for you about the passion for leveling the playing field, for bringing about equality that has really fueled your efforts? Yeah, you know, and this is what I, was, I referenced earlier personally. Um, in 2008, I was attacked by an Italian citizen when I was there on vacation, someone I'd met earlier in the night. But, you know, I almost died. I, I had to fend for my life and fend off a rape and do this very dynamic escape. And I wrote about it, Marie Claire, and a, a bunch of forums, and I talk about it all the time. But getting through that, um, surviving that, and prosecuting and trying to make that person accountable and having him plead guilty, all those things. It was that moment where I was like, I cannot believe, you know, I've done all these things in my life. I've done played by all the rules that they told me to, right? Things we re reward women for if you do X, Y, Z. And I still almost died <laughs> and lost my life after, after, going to school, getting my degree, trying to create a career, all the things that were important to me were almost, they were almost gone. And after he pled guilty, he never even went to jail. He had 11 months, 10 days. And this was a woman that's judge. And, you know, well, he hasn't been caught for this before. I mean, it was just an unbelievable, and, and this was in Italy, but I don't think it would have been any better here in the States. We don't have much better of a track record. So anyone who thinks we do is completely clueless. Um, but I think it was that moment of like, how unimportant my life felt, you know, by the courts and by the, by the people that, by a person that I didn't even know, like the lack of services available to me, um, the things I had to figure out on my own. Um, that was just kind of that flashpoint moment. And then like, I always say like, once you're, you know, once the blinder has been ripped off, you can never go back. You know, you wake up, well, they say you wake up from a dream and you, you, you try to get back to it, but you can't like I, I started to see things through that frame of reference, lack of services. We say we care about women and safety, but then we have terrible funding.
for anything for women in safety. You know, we, we, it, it's like we say this, but we do this. And, uh, and then you just become really mad. And they say part of being a feminist, which I've always been a feminist, is like, you're pretty mad most of the time. <laughs> because you're like, this is ridiculous. I'm asking for basic services funding i'd like to walk down the street and feel safe like um and so like once you you know and i'm sure people all have that moment i i do think a cause usually finds you and not the other way around you know and once it does it kind of ignites and that's how it was supposed to be i mean it's, it was written in the stars but if you look back through history for me when i was just preparing to move coming up here i was going through all my childhood files all the things that i was going to shed because i owned a house and i knew i was going back to a, like a small apartment i mean as long as, as young as five i was like just rawr, like <laughs> i beat so and so up he's a stupid boy like just just the funniest and like oh i fell in love with uh elizabeth the first you know from the 1500s when i was like 12 and i'm like she's the best like she's so cool like I, I just, so I'm like it's actually not that far off that I am where I am now doing this work but um the flashpoint was really that personal experience and just kind of waking up you know when I was younger people would always say oh well women's a social issue like there's like core economic issues then there's like social issues like women's rights and you suddenly you kind of go well actually they're pretty intrinsic to economics and actually it's half the population it's not like an accessory you know and so yeah that was kind of my awakening and it's it's, it's horrible and horrific but i i do implore everybody to go read the story because carrie you overcoming this attacker when you know the door is locked he's an inch from your face he's basically taunting you saying that you know, he can essentially do whatever he wants and you're you're yeah. fighting back you know can you can you summarize that moment of how you you know the fight or flight how did yeah. you manage to kick it in and and get the heck out of there i mean you're plunging you know several stories you're jumping off of rooftops to escape it's it's almost like an action movie but it's it's terrifying no, I, because this is yeah. happening to you in real life yeah i know it i hate almost in some ways i hate how spectacular it was because there's so many women especially that'll tell me well i knew i i know i couldn't do that so i probably would just ask him not to kill me. You know, I would just do what you have to do, but don't, you know, and then that crushes me because that's not, that's not the takeaway. You know, not every woman is five foot 10 who thinks she's like seven feet tall. I act like I'm like eight feet tall. Um, <laughs> anyone who knows me knows that. I would say that it like two things. I had taken a self-defense class actually at Syracuse my last year of school. And it wasn't even the physical elements of that class that I really remembered. Like I do remember certain things like never punch with your thumb under your fingers and you know, that kind of thing. But it was really ever from that point on thinking when I would hear about something in the news, evaluating it through that lens, you know, like principles of if someone's trying to lock you in a space, fight like hell to get out before it's locked. Because once it's locked, it's like game over, you know? So fight before they drag you in the car. Don't think you're gonna get in the car and get, you know, shatter a window. Don't yell help. People think you're drunk and making, you know, jokes. But something that's so abnormal that people will remember to tell the police that would they would know is not a normal sound. Something like break a window if you can. 
you know, if you're locked in a house, like, so those are things I always thought of. They were just, it was more the mental game than anything physically. And so I knew when he had locked the door that I had to get out the other door before he ever had the chance to lock it, you know, because then I'm, I don't know where I am. I don't know what he's got hidden, like what, I don't know his house, his apartment, you know? Um, and so that really, that was the kind of the mindset that I went into, but you really, you don't know how your body's going to react. I tell people, I really can't, you can't, I'm not responsible for how I reacted. Most people just shut down and my body was totally shutting down. I could tell you it was completely had the freeze going on. I, I mean, it was completely frozen. And the only part working was my brain. And I was yelling at myself, like, get it together, Carrie. Like what, what is what, you know, do something. Um, and so I, I do credit that class strangely. You wouldn't think, but it taught me how to think. And um, yeah, no, I got through it. And I just remember this moment where I realized like he didn't see me as a person. And I said to him, my parents and my family know I'm here. My friend knows I'm actually with you right now. Like, like, what are you doing? And it, it just, you know, you think you can reason with someone, but you can't. When someone doesn't see you as a person, like the person who does this kind of thing is not, you know, on one hand, you look like your everyday guy, but in terms of how they don't value you at all. So it's really hard to connect there. Um, and then I just realized, like, I like my chances. I trust myself physically. I can do this. I'd rather try this than stay around for that. And that is a personal decision every person makes. And whatever they decide is what's right for them. So I say to women and men, this happens to men all the time, especially in the military where they don't, it was a chain of command and there's consequence and, you know, it's, it's, it's pervasive. Um, whatever you decide you have to do to survive is what you should do. And that's the right thing. And nobody can tell you, you know, uh, but I do know, you know, systemically we don't support women that you know, then will say, well, you didn't fight. It's, it's, it's such a it's, messed up philosophy. It's absurd. To, it's absurd. Like, like, it's absurd. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much. So, like, what I'm saying to you is, I had that experience. I saw the whole gamut of how that all goes down. You know, I was sexually assaulted. You just didn't complete the rape. And oh gosh, when you get a window into that, and then you then you compare it versus what you were taught and how people talk about it, and you just want to scream. You're like, oh, I have so much to share. Oh my God, no one told me. You know, and that's the part of it. And everyone, I hope, has an aha moment, not necessarily what I had, sure. but where they feel, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to be part of the, this change. This cannot go on any longer. And I do think we see that with this generation, with the protests that took place. This cannot go on any longer. This cannot. Now that, I, now that I've had the time to be home and focus on this, I don't have the, you know, X, Y, Z pulling me away to, to watch the horrors of what happened with George Floyd. Yeah, I'm in. You know, I'm in. And so that's kind of the flashpoint I hope I hope people get to. And that's and that's what that experience led for me, you know, led to for me. Well, and really it's it is it, it's gripping to hear you, you know, you recount and tell the story, but it's also it's re it's refreshing to hear you've taken again this horrific low moment and it's it's even further fueled your rights to get involved in gender-based, you know, women's empowerment and victims advocacy. Um, and, yeah. and working on nonprofits. And, and again, what you're doing with DC is going to continue to fulfill, you know, your, your destiny, if you will. You said, you know, people, yes. the careers oftentimes don't, you know, they, they choose you. You don't often choose them. And you're so well catered 
for this line of work that I just feel like it's, it's destined to have a great impact. And look, ESPN, we can talk a little bit more about your career at ESPN. It's fabulous. The fact that you were involved with the communication strategies for the ESPYs, the live television entertainment show and the 30 for 30s, yeah. which I personally- it was awesome. I've been awesome. devouring those like crazy during the <laughs> pandemic. There were no live yeah. sports. And you'd say, well, you know what? I'll watch the four falls of Buffalo for the fifth time because I'm a masochist Bills fan who wants yeah, to relive oh some good yeah. times out there. <laughs> but it, it's remarkable, Carrie. And, and when you look at it, I guess, how, what are some of the proud moments you have from your ESPN tenure? Like, what really stands out to you as far as things that you accomplished that really made a difference and, and make you proud? Well, it definitely was 30 for 30 launch because I was in the middle of my trial um, I'd been attacked the end of November, 2008, and we were launching, um, in the fall of 09, the first ever slate of films. Um, and so I don't know for the film publicists watching, but if anyone comes to you and says, we're going to give you 30 documentary films and only 14 months to promote them run far away, <laughs> run, ask for a raise and run. Um, you know, I mean, they're coming week, we would have six week blocks. And um, to, to have just grinded that out, you know, to use every possible angle, element, network, relationship, you name it, to get those films, the coverage, each of those topics deserved. I mean, some of them were so special, you know, some of them were tougher, <clears throat> you know, um, cause I, you know, maybe I didn't watch that sport or whatever, but you know, that, that to me was because of what I was going through personally and the fact I was able to successfully navigate that space for our company when there was no other publicist who'd done film PR, you know, now we're turning them out. We've got Oscars, we're getting Emmy not like, you know, at the time, sports reporters are like, mm, you're not HBO. We're not going to write about it. And then I'd go to like the TV writer. They're like, oh, you're sports. Like, so it was like the, I was a pinball. I couldn't get home, you know, until we got traction. Nobody really wanted to write about it. And so looking where it is at now, knowing I was on the, the ground of that is just a huge, I'm very proud, you know, of that and proud of myself for, you know, it was so intense that work that I actually could go to work and not have to think about what was going on personally. So it was actually a great, great break for me uh, because I'd come out of work and oh yeah, I mean, Italy was always hanging there in the background, but during the day I could just encase myself in the work. So I was actually pretty grateful for that. So I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of what we did with the SEC network launch for sure. It was the most successful cable network launch. Um, and just great leadership, Steph Drulli and Justin Conley. Like those are two people I go through a brick wall for and to see what leadership like that looks like, it's pretty special and pretty rare. Um, so that was awesome. And honestly, the other thing is just leading my team. I, I love being a, a manager, supervisor, you know, I'm not for everybody and you know, you try, <laughs> you know, I'm very specific flavor, but I do love, I've always had bosses that they know what they're good at. They know what they're not good at they have the confidence to say, I'm going to go let you be good at this thing, you know, and it doesn't affect, right. And I, so I, I, I know that's rare because I have a lot of friends that have bosses and I hear the horror stories. So I want to be that boss, you know? And so I really enjoy that. I like, I like managing people. So I'd say those are like my pride points 
really, uh, you know, I started some programs for kids from HBCUs and commuter schools that don't get to have these fancy internships with us the way SEC schools do contractually. And, you know, that was important to me too, to give kids a chance at, to get experience with us. They could go on and it opened doors for them. So that was important. But yeah, I mean, those are, those are the things there's a million stories. I'll put it in a book someday, but then I'd be competing with every other publicist from ESPN that has a million other stories. I don't know that there'd be much of a market. Maybe we could do like a anthology or something, but um, yeah. And here's the thing about switching careers. I mean, yes, I'm still in in PR, but I really do eventually want to become a, like a technical specialist in gender, you know, for the UN or something like that. Um, you know, go out and do the field work. I, I hosted a panel for the UNFPA in Nairobi in November. And when I got asked to do that, I think I had like a three week turnaround, went and got my malaria shots and boom, on a plane to Nairobi, just, I mean, uh, 20 hours or something like that. And just one of those life-changing moments. We're, we're having these very advanced discussions here on equality and pay gap. And when you go to that conference in particular, we're still in many parts of the world just trying to get girls to be able to go to school and not die or be killed for it. So it, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, Carrie, we're way down the road in the Western world on very nuanced elements of gender inequality, right? And you go there and you're hearing about someone who has no shoes, you know, uh, and she, she walks miles to go to school, you know, through like dangerous terrain. Um, or we have young girls that, you know, when they, when they're um, menstruating, they're put out like in a cage for days outside, like they did something wrong, right? So I see that and I'm like, oh, I want to help with that. You know, I want to, you know, so that's a future thing you have to get in the space. So I needed to get in the space full time, you know, and so that's what I've done. And I'm so happy to be here. We have a brilliant executive in Nicole Mason and brilliant researchers. So my job's not that hard, actually. It's remarkable your, your intuition, but your drive and your passion. And that stems up back, obviously beyond Syracuse, but yeah. I want to take you back to your days on the Hill here. Uh, yeah. When you were a student athlete on the volleyball team, you know, you graduate with a 4.0, get through Newhouse in three years, you earn your master's degree from Newhouse. I mean, Carrie, your resume is fantastic. You earn the highest accolade that a student athlete at Syracuse can earn, Adora Solid A Female Athlete of the Year. What was it like juggling the challenges of being a student athlete at the highest level and being in Newhouse, which has such a rigorous academic course load? I always tell people I'm not the sharpest. I'm not the smartest. I will, I will beat you on work ethic most of the time. Like any of my success has always been about uh, trying to outthink something to make up for what I don't have naturally. You know, I, I'm a, yes, I'm a smart person, but you know, I'm not a, a math Olympiad here. We're not talking, uh, you know, nuclear physics. I, but I know that that's the good thing. A lot, you know, like I, I know that about myself, like I, and it was always work. So when I was in high school, I was in all those AP classes, but I also got off the train for like AP chem and AP physics because they would have made me miserable. When you get off that train, you're no longer in the run for the Ivies. You know, there's, it's just like a whole pattern, right? Smithtown, Long Island Public School. And, <laughs> you know, I had to kind of navigate, well, what do I want this to do? Well, I want it to serve me so that I can get through school as quickly as possible. You know, I'm on a scholarship. So I entered as a sophomore. It, it wasn't because I was like, I mean, yes, obviously I, I did well enough to get 29 credits, but 
I say I just have a love for efficiency and, and, you know, finding another way in to get something done. And so to me, uh, I was able to do that, you know, and, and getting the, the second degree at Syracuse while I was playing, like it was hard and I had to sacrifice things. Like I don't have really elaborate, great stories, like of crazy things I did as an undergrad because I couldn't get too crazy. I had so much at stake. I couldn't do the crazy stuff. I, I didn't want to lose my scholarship. I, you know, I was in grad school my last year and everyone else is taking their blow off classes. And I'm, you know, six projects in with all these other grad students, some of which are like, you know, mid-career professionals. I can't be, I can't act like a 21 year old, you know, I, I had to, you know, be respectful. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, Syracuse was really afforded me the chance to do those things. I picked the right school, you know, that let me do that. Uh, but it was hard. And you know, I, yeah, there was other things I couldn't do, but I don't regret it at all. And when I look at the runaway costs right now of, of debt and, you know, what kids go through, I'm so blessed yeah. that I got my degrees when I did and, and got out. Um, and I will always, like, like you said, I, here I am at a very small, I mean, I went from a, oh gosh, I don't even know how big Disney is, but ESPN was at least like 8,000 people and we're about 25 here. And, you know, yeah. And I've got, you know, this rebrand announcement I'm going to put out next week and I just want to blow it out of the water and so many folks are like don't have too high expectations it is a research think tank and I'm like I am going to make this thing sing you know and I don't know maybe I will or I won't but let me tell you this weekend what will I be doing I'm going to be working it so hard so that I don't have a huge disappointment next week you know <laughs> so that's kind of that's kind of how I approach most things um, but I also know I have a luxury. I don't have a family. You know, I don't have children. I don't have those pressing things. I mean, so many of my friends are trying to be school teachers and they have no break and the very Western thing of having your kids and then like kind of handing them off to school for like 12 years. <laughs> Nobody has that option right now. So I have mobility and I have time. There's, these are excellent commodities and I, you know, I, I get to work all weekend on something like building a network for a press release instead of going to a soccer game or who knows what happens with kids. But yeah, so. <laughs> for all the hard work you put into it, and clearly you do bleed orange quite passionately, what does Syracuse mean to you? And what does it mean when someone finds out that you're an alumna of Syracuse? Syracuse really means like home and connection. I... I don't have an attachment even to my high school in the way that I have an attachment to Syracuse. Yeah. I always know what it means when someone went there. I, we just have this like kind of a, a really good common ground. You know, I it's, it is, I really think the Cuse family and I go back there a lot. I still know a lot of the same people. Um, you know, I go back and I talk to the kids. I've always talked to students that come to me. I have professionally gone back there for work. We did college game day there. I was, Coach Bayheim's like summer staff assistant my freshman year and babysat his kids. His kids are huge now. Oh my gosh, buddy. I'm like, oh my God, buddy was a baby. <laughs> like, I have his pictures when he was uh, getting fed in his high chair. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just family. And yeah, I just, it's very comforting. Like when I saw Greenberg House, I was so excited <laughs> last week. I was like, oh, oh. But yeah. That's what it means. And it's, uh, I'm very proud, very proud of our school. 
Well, Carrie, I know that you've had a, a great career so far. We know that great things are coming for you down the road. You're going to crush it with this ad campaign coming up. You're going to do great yes. work with everything. Make sure to watch out for Carrie Potts on social media because That's she's great. an entertaining follow. You'll get a lot of great content, especially on Twitter. I love I love your I love your involvement with social media in general. You're not afraid to give it and take it. No. Get involved in conversations and it's I'm dangerous just... now. I have a lot to say. <laughs> I'm super dangerous now that I've been let loose from the world of sports. Like people are yeah. texting me privately because they're still too scared to like some of my tweets, but they're like, I love what you're saying now. <laughs> <It's so funny. laughs> well, I have to say, Carrie, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation here on the Thank podcast. You. And again, I wish you nothing but the best that I know you'll keep uh, knocking down those barriers and those goals that you set for yourself. Thank you. And good luck with editing this. That's going to be fun. But we'll, put a, we'll put a nice fun product together out there. Okay, again, perfect. <laughs> again, Carrie Potts, I want to thank her for our time here on the Cuse Conversations podcast. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>